Lifestyle of a Concorde Pilot The Passenger Experience What is the difference between flying a Concorde and other jet airliners? This is the Defense Aviation Podcast, episode number 7. Run free and dive into the sky Hear the wind crying out its prayer While we are so ashamed to be alive Break the chains and our freedom is ours to take Frustrated with high cost press release distribution services that just fail to give you the right exposure? For just $7.99 per year, we will publish your press releases that will reach the right audience in the aerospace industry. Visit defenseaviation.com forward slash PR and use the coupon code podcast to get 16% discount. Welcome to Defense Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Larkins de Souza, and founder of defenseaviation.com. In this episode, I interview Tony Yule, a former Concorde pilot for the British Airways. For show notes, visit defenseaviation.com forward slash episode 7. Tony was introduced to me by Emma Rasmussen, a huge Concorde fan. You can check out our website at defenseaviation.com forward slash Emma. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you very much, Larkins, and it's nice to be chatting with you again. And to you, dear listener, for being with us today as well. Thanks very much for the introduction. A few months ago, when you sent me the invitation, I said to my wife, oh, wow, in your wildest dreams, did you ever think I would be talking and doing a podcast with uh, uh, with Larkins on, on his aviation website? And she put her book down, looked at me and said, Tony, you don't even appear in my wildest dreams. Well, about the age of eight, I did have a dream to be a pilot, which came to fruition some 10 years later when I was accepted for pilot training in the Royal Air Force, incidentally without any qualifications, and thus began a career spanning 46 years, where I had the greatest of pleasure of working and flying with like-minded people, flying some great aeroplanes, taking some of them to super destinations around the world, where I stayed in some of the best hotels, ate in some of the finest restaurants, got paid for it, and made a profit out of it. I would think, dear listener, you must be thinking to yourself, man, this man has had a magic life. And yes, indeed, I have. You could sum it up in the three words of the prophet. P-F-M. Pure effing magic. But you know, that started a very long time ago. And I was rudely reminded of that in 2007, one year after we sent our youngest son, David, to become uh, a pilot in Vancouver Island, Canada. He's now, incidentally, a typhoon pilot based on two squadron at RAF Lossiemouth in Scotland. He and I were giving a joint presentation as part of the Edinburgh Science Festival and I suppose, and the Royal Museum in Edinburgh, and I suppose you would think that I would be talking about Concorde, which is true, but his talk was going to be on learning to fly in the 21st century. I made the introductions, he stood up and he said, well, he's got this voice that comes down from the bottom of his boots somewhere. Well, you don't really want to know when Dad learned to fly because this was Dad's flight school. And he threw up on the screen a picture of the flyer, that's right, the Wright Brothers flyer, Kitty Hawk in 1903. And he went on to say, things were different way back then. Flying was dangerous and sex was safe. But, you know, we, these are all little war stories we can talk about later on. And so we're going to, before we start on the show proper, 
I would just like to add my thanks to Emma, who Larkin's just introduced. I mean, she is a fantastic young lady. Her enthusiasm and knowledge of Concord probably exceeds most of the people on the fleet. She's done so much. And her interest in future supersonic flight, where she was a, been an intern for Boom Supersonics, and we'll be talking about Boom and, and Blake Stoll a little later on. Thanks, Larkinson. Here we are to you now. Tony, take a minute. Fill us any blanks from that introduction and give, give us a glimpse into your personal life. Well, I, pers- I mean, my life has been involved around aviation. Uh, family, just briefly then, family history is Scottish. My um, great-grandfather, he went to New Zealand in uh, 1860 at age of 20, and then uh, he went down to the South Island. My grandfather and father were born there. Dad came over to uh, join millions of others in Britain to act against Hitler, should a war break out, in which it did. He was accepted for pilot training at, at Cranwell, and in 1938, cut, his training was cut short, went straight out onto flying. He was flying uh, the Hurricane, first of all, and then quickly changed to the... Uh, uh, Spitfire, but during his short time on the, at the beginning of World uh, the, in the, or Battle of Britain, he was shot down, um, had a bad injury to his leg, but he recovered and went on to become a, a minor ace. He ended up as a wing commander, a young wing commander, age 20, 20, 23, um, and was demoted after the war. I went, after the war, he went down to New Zealand to see his parents, and uh, we all went out on the ship. And uh, because it was school age time, I went to his school in Timaru on the west, uh, the east coast of uh, the South Island of New Zealand, where I stayed for about three years before joining the family um, and coming back to England from Hong Kong. Dad was actually then running 28 Squadron at Kai Tak, a defender of the faith, as it were. I went to a private uh, public school in the in the uh, in the West Country, Chard. Now, interestingly, enough, Chard became the home of a 20-year-old, um, a man called John Stringfellow. I won't expand on him much more than you. Look up John Stringfellow. He effectively is the father of powered flight, born in 1799. Very interesting story, anyway. But his flying machine, without, without, without a person on board, his model flying machine, was flown 55 years before the Wright brothers. So this man is a big part of aviation, and he's recognized by the Smithsonian Institute of Aviation. I went through school, as I said, I ended up with no qualifications, managed to, with I think a bit of help from uh, the big man above, to get into uh, the Royal Air Force, and just had, I mean, it was fantastic time. I trained on the hunting Percival Provost, which was known as a Piston Provost, then we had a, then onto the, uh, the Vampire T-11, from there onto the Valiants, the first of the V-Force, when they broke up because of the uh, spa problems they had, uh, we went to, uh, to Central Flying School where I became an instructor, back to the Royal Air Force College uh, to be there for four years. Finally, on the Royal Air Force VC-10, when I realized my flying career was coming to an end and I didn't want to do a ground job, um, I premature voluntary retired, PVR'd, um, joined BOAC, also on the, uh, the, B, uh, the Super VC-10, Standard VC-10, and then uh, did that for three years until they were broken up because Boeing made a big deal with British Airways. I then went on to uh, 
two and a half years stand down. Now that was very interesting because it was a private aeroplane. At the time that all the VC-10s were disbanded, there were far too many pilots, you know, sitting around doing nothing. British Airways sent us home basically for one year on full basic pay, but we were not allowed to work or earn money anywhere else. Oh, we could do, but we couldn't have any money from BA. So that, that was the rules. I ended up with a uh, close friend of mine, Harry Thompson, flying his Hawker Siddeley 125 3B series, owned by Mark Heath Securities. Paul Bobroff has a big um, managing company for property and things like that, property development. Did that for two and a half years. Fantastic time. It was really <laughs> very good. Kept me occupied. Then I was called back into British Airways, and then I flew the... BAC 111 for four years before getting becoming a uh, onto the Concorde course, which we can we're going to talk about that a little later on. Did the Concorde course? Then I got my captaincy at the end of it because the rules on Concorde were um, you had to, after you finished your Concorde time, if you were a first officer, you could only go as a captain on another aeroplane. You couldn't become a first officer on uh, on any other aeroplane in the fleet. And then I came to the uh, end of the conference, I did my captaincy, had to retire at age 55 in those days. I then went out to work in Italy on the long-range Boeing 767, 75, uh, the long-range 300 ER. Did that for uh, five years, and then the Italians changed the rules without telling anybody. Nobody over the age of 60 could fly there. So then I went to Air Holland. In the Netherlands, where I'm currently living, I got a wee house here as well. I bought that in 2008, and they had a 757, and uh, I flew that for a short while. They have then they got the 767, the long range 300ER, and I stayed until I retired in 2005. And then I've just been since then. I've actually been gathering all the information, all my all my pictures, and trying to get them all together. I'm still doing it, and it's all those years ago. <laughs> Uh, and then I was invited to um, partake in the Cunard and P&O talking program. So I joined the cruise ships about every other month I was doing a cruise. And you had to have different talks. And you did a cruise either with two talks, four talks, six talks. And I had, I had a range of up to ten talks to be able to give, which I did on several long transatlantic crossings. Absolutely magic. You know, I, got, I was so used to flying around at uh, 20. 23 miles a minute being on a cruise ship it was like 23 minutes a mile but a very nice life if you like it especially as a crew member and being able to give talks that's the summary is where we are today so here i am just and talking with you that's an interesting story tony especially a part about your 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 family line being everyone being a pilot your dad your son yep there are five, in my life at the moment, there are five children, but the, the, the oldest son, he actually was in the, uh, he, he was out in Australia and he joined uh, the Australian Air Force, but not as a pilot. Um, he didn't, have, he like me, didn't have any qualifications. And anyway, but he walked, he worked as a, finally got, because he's, um, he discovered he was colorblind, partial colorblind. He couldn't fly anyway, and he couldn't even do air traffic control, which was one of his chosen other, you know, sections. So he became a cabin attendant with them, and uh, he, then he was flying as a VIP cabin attendant for the Prime Minister of Australia. And then he left there and went to Qantas as a cabin attendant. And from there, and then when he came back to the UK, he became an actor. 
and now, and interesting enough, he did that for, for a few years, and now he's um, what we friend, what the we Royal Air Force people say, he's become a GB. He's uh, becoming a god brother, what god botherer? That is a pastor. Uh, he's at the uh, university now in uh, in England, and he's waiting to you know for his actually exams are coming up now um, in the next uh, in the next few months, and some at the end of the year. So we'll see where he goes from there. To some who have never heard of Concorde, can you talk to us in brief the history of the aircraft? Yes. Um, okay. The one thing about you know technology, it it never goes backwards. Although since Concorde stopped flying, when I used to and I say to my grandchildren, we used to fly to Con- you know to New York in just over three hours. It goes back into World War Two when they discovered that the aviation, uh, the speed of aviation, would be a lifesaver. So they started doing some tests with a. Uh, photo reconnaissance um, Spitfire, I think it was maybe a Spitfire Mark 11, I can't exactly remember. So they stripped everything off it, put on a special propeller, strengthened one, uh, as light as it could, took it up to high altitude, not a thing where I recommend to do with with, uh, the average aeroplane, was select full power, stuff the nose down to 45 degrees and just see what happened. Well, at one point, on one of the test runs, I think Squadron Leader Martindale, he achieved a speed of the cruising speed of a, a normal Boeing 737. But on one particular occasion, about 20 miles from base, as they were, this pilot was heading earthwards, the, the propeller, which he shouldn't have done, disintegrated, leaving him with um, a damaged aeroplane and uh, <laughs> no power. Now, largely due to the skill of the pilot and the superb design of R.J. Mitchell's aeroplane, this pilot made a safe engine out landing back at base. And history has it that he actually quickly retired to the bar for a few stiff scotches. Well, I agree with what, you know, what he did and I would have done the same, except I would have needed a change of underwear first. Well, from his, from his point of view, that was in 50, uh, that was in 43. Eleven years later, two gentlemen walked out of a hangar at Farnborough and said, you know, I, one of them said, I think we should fly an aeroplane at twice the speed of sound, taking some hundred plus passengers across the, the pond to, uh, to America. And thus began an investigation into supersonic flight and the, in 56 was a supersonic transport air committee, which was formed to try and sort out all the bits and pieces. Now, we realised, everybody realised, you can't do this on your own. I mean, the Americans found that out much later on. You just need an earth weight of, of money. We couldn't use the Germans because they didn't have a system. The Russians we weren't talking to because there was a wall. The French, they had interests in North Africa. We were using with their super caravel uh, to go down there at a, at a Mach 1.2, 1.3 type of thing. But we wanted a Mach 2 aeroplane to go across to um to the uh, west coast of America, because we had interests there. The committee got everybody together, formed it, they did a, uh, a study, and by 1962, they had agreed on the, the Mac 2 Concorde. And the, uh, it became then a very political aeroplane, because really what happened was, um, they couldn't decide. The French wanted the E, it was designed, instead of from the SST, supersonic transport, it was Concorde without an E. And eventually, it took four years to get the E on the end of the thing, you could imagine. And de Gaulle was against us all the way anyway. But what is interesting, that in 1964, when the Labour government came to power, um, the Conservatives left, and I've forgotten the name of uh, 
oh, I can think of reason, and it doesn't matter. There's no money in the pot. Uh, and Wilson, the Prime Minister, realised, hey, <laughs> we can't do this, we haven't got the money. So promptly cancelled Concorde, cancelled the supersonic ver version of the, uh, of the Harrier, cancelled the TSR-2. Interestingly enough, on that, those who want to look it up in history, when um, Dennis Healy was the, the then the minister for, responsible for that, the jigs were immediately broken up. I mean, broken up to a point they were in bits. Nothing could ever, re you know, resurrect that. Allegedly, it was information that came from the Russian side, but they were, it's allegedly, we don't, we don't know that. Well, when de Gaulle heard what had gone on about this time, um, late 64, he went apoplectic and he told Wilson that, you know, the damages you have to pay for stopping this project, you know, it will pale into, into insignificance to what it's going to cost you to keep going in, 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 in you know, building the aeroplane. The, the cabinet got together. They said, yeah, okay, at Christmas, Christmas Day, and then in January, Wilson went back to de Gaulle and said, um, how about, um, please, uh, Concord is reinstated, and please can we join the common market? De Gaulle, I said, no. That was it. So Concord immediately started the drawings and cutting the metals for it, um, and basically that's the way the history has, has come out. There were initially two, well, with varying figures, but look, there were notes of interest of over 200 aeroplanes possible. But then with the collapse of TWA in Pan Am, a whole lot like a house of cards just started to collapse. So ultimately, there were 20 Concords built. And the, the first six aeroplanes, prototype and two other development aeroplanes, were used for the testing of the aeroplane. Now, it's interesting because Concorde was the most heavily tested aeroplane ever built. You have to remember or think deeply about it. She's two aeroplanes in one. That's why it's like this. She was basically like operated like a jumbo or a 737, but in the normal atmosphere and below 40,000 feet. And then she was in the hostile uh, atmosphere above 50,000 feet in supercruise, that is um, Mach 2, and all the attending problems and the heat problems that she would develop. So that's why the, the, the testing went on in, in that way. And it was five and a half thousand hours over six aeroplanes over just, just under seven years before ending up the, uh, with the first flight, which, interesting enough today, I might remind you, is the 48th anniversary of Concorde, the British Concorde's first departure from out of Filton. But we're going to cover a lot more of that in 2019. The big event's going to be coming up then. And maybe I'll come back and join with you. But that's basically the brief history as to where we were. So the first flight, commercial flight, uh, along with Air France, was the 21st of January, 1976, Simultaneous takeoff from Paris and from London. We went down to Bahrain and they went down to Rio. So there we are. So that's that's a brief history. Not many people know this, but there's a significant difference between the British Concorde and the French Concorde, right? Mm, well, now that's a new one. Now Emma may have dug something dug something up. I don't think so, because, I, I mean, the design was exactly the same. So, unless something... I can, no, I can't see that. I really don't see that. Um, that's a bit of history. You know, we can come back and, you're, and, a, and a listener, you can ask, you know, send in a mail, and, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll look it up for you. Actually, what I'll do is I'll get Emma to look it up. 
in truth, two Concords flying on the same route um, at the same at the same speed, because you always flew at the maximum speed possible. Um, that, that was interesting enough, because Concorde could not fly from London to New York subsonically. could only fly supersonically to get there in the required amount of time. So, I, yeah, sorry, Larkins, I'm not, I'm not sure about that, unless you have something, you know, that you know that, that might just trigger my memory. Yeah, uh, Emma and I were discussing about this, and she was very adamant that there was very much difference between the British Concorde and the French Concorde. So we need to discuss with her about this. Yeah, I, I, but I don't... Um, yes, I, I define, you know, a definition of very different will be depending on who you are, from uh, coming where you're coming from. Uh, it, there may be minor differences, you know, where we use carbon brakes and they may have used steel brakes. You know, we had... Um, different tyres, you know, all those sorts of things. So there were those differences, yes, but but in terms of the basic airframe, no, it, they were actually exactly the same. All right. Let's talk about your lifestyle when you were a Concorde pilot. What was your typical day like? Yes. Uh, would you would you like to cover, we cover a bit about the training or are you going to do that a little later on? Because that determines where we okay. go from. Okay, let's talk about your training. Well, okay. I want to cover a misconception. There are many people out there, and I've been and I've been approached on the various charter flights I've been on. I said, "Hey, you know, you guys are the top pilots. You know, you're the best of the best." Well, this, this is not a Top Gun situation, Larkins, and for our dear listener. British Airways, like all most other airline companies, and probably all airline companies, run a seniority system, and a bidding system. So in your order of seniority, when the bids come out each year for the various aeroplanes or the fleet, the courses that will be available, the most senior pilot can make his bid to be wherever he wants to be. The most junior pilot gets, you know, well, virtually nothing. So you had to be senior to be on the fleet, for sure. You wouldn't have a junior pilot on there. And yes, there was um, a sort of, well, we didn't know this. We learned about it later on. But every pilot who bid for Concorde, in fact, probably even on many ships, but certainly on Concorde, your record was taken out and looked for to see if there were any possible, uh, had you failed any courses, had you done this, had you done that, was there anything in there that, you know, that might allow you to fail the course? Because the course was extremely difficult from uh, and different from anything else. Uh, British Airways trained their pilots at Crane Bank, one mile to the east of the airport. We nicknamed it Brain Crank, but all the stuff was done there, and it was all done on digital, you know, computer computer modules, CBT, computer-based training. So you did your hydraulics exam, you know, or did your hydraulics course, rather, online, then you did the exam, and you've passed. So, and that's how the whole thing went. And when you finished all that, depending on the size of aeroplane you were flying, let's say 737, so you've got about two or three weeks on the ground school and, the, uh, and a, or a month all told, including the simulator, and then you would do some flying down uh, at base, three landings, maybe four, something like that. Uh, jumbos were a bit longer than that. Your jumbo would take two, two months or so, two and a half months, uh, but still the same three landings. Concorde was done down at Bristol Fulton. Now, 
for those of you who don't know, Bristol is uh, 120 miles to the west of uh, Heathrow. And in the hangar down there, it, we, we did the course and uh, all the ground tools done there. We were away from home, anything from uh, between four and a half and five and a half months. The ground school was very long, chalk and talk, so there was an instructor in the classroom, and he went through everything, and when it came to a point to explain something, as you imagine yourself now in a square room looking forward at the instructor, now if you look round to your right-hand side, and back in there was a wee door in the corner, and behind that wee door was a flight simulator. So you'd take us in there, there were only you know, four to six people on the course at any one time, and you would then run through that system on the flight simulator, so he's told you on the blackboard, and you see it in there. That's my ideal way of learning to fly. So, seven weeks in the ground school, lots of questions, you know, it's on a need-to-know basis, what you needed to know to fly this aeroplane safely. We weren't allowed to look at any books, you know, to go forward, anything else. When that was done, then we did seven weeks in the simulator. Uh, and it was between two, about two flights, you know, two to three uh, flights per week in the simulator, four hours at each sector. One hour briefing and anything one and a half to two hours debriefing afterwards. Now, I spent most of my time, you know, at, at, at 60,000 feet in the simulator dealing with all the problems that would go wrong in a hostile type atmosphere. And when that was all, you know, very few, very few heavyweight takeoffs of things. So that was all done at the end of all of which, which you practiced, you know, uh, doing emergency descents and engine out, engine failures, double engine failures. And remind me to come back to you about double engine failure because it's quite unique for that from our listener who probably is a very interesting pilot and Emma might even like this as well. The aeroplane, when you have, you've, you've finished all that, we then did our final check on the flight simulator. That would be a, a what you call it, a, it's a typical flight with an engine failure as, as we were all aeroplanes, fly around the circuit, Failure to make into a landing, have to do a go around, come back and make a landing again, and and then various other failures, all standard, all standard type stuff that happens at any other airline. So it's behaving. The, the high level bit is done on on line training. So when you've passed all that, about six to eight trips, London to New York and back, London to uh, Washington and back, something like that. Go there, stay overnight, and come back again. Incidentally, when we did, uh, then we would do, uh, say, about eight trips, and then you would be independently checked on a flight check by the flight manager technical who had nothing to do with the, he was actually effectively the boss on the fleet, it was nothing to do with the training system. So the training system was independently checked by another person on the fleet who was responsible for the whole lot. And once we started after that, then basically lifestyle, about 16, 14 to 16 days worth a month, six trips a month, out one day, back the next. Now, the reason we didn't go there and back, you say, well, you know, we said only, only three and a half hours there. We had to check in a lot earlier than most other pilots, so your duty day started. Um, and the other thing was uh, that the passengers in New York were not ready to come back by the time we arrived. So it was based on the timings. So instead of having just an aeroplane, spare aeroplane sitting there, in case the first one went US, we had a spare crew and a spare aeroplane in New York for every departure that left from there. Lovely lifestyle. I think in six years, when I did, well, what did I do? I suppose somewhere 400, about 2,500 hours on Concorde. 
and for each flight across the Atlantic will be just over two hours, or it'll be, well, it'll be more than two, just over two hours at Mach 2, some two and three-quarter hours um, supersonic flight. And two night flights that I did, that's all, and that was one was on a return back from Barbados with an aeroplane that had a, a problem, and one across from the west coast of the States where we couldn't come back uh, supersonic over the land anyway. We got to St. John's in Newfoundland, and then we then uh, went off to, then we came back supersonic, you know, over, over the Atlantic. A, a magic lifestyle, listener, absolutely magic, you know. It was, you were home, no jet lag, nothing. I mean, I cannot tell you how wonderful it was, and I'm still imagining it now. That sounds amazing, Tony. <laughs> Well, I, I, from a pilot's point of view, it's a dream. Do you know, I, I think if, if, if I could honestly say, um, now, why weren't more pilots flying Concorde? Well, the truth was, that was the route structure. New York and back, New York and back, and Washington. Then they introduced Barbados in the winter season from Christmas, just before Christmas until just after Easter, um, which in turn became, you know, that was a lovely stop for us as well. But it was people, and we were lo and you would lose money by flying Concorde. That's part of the problem. A lot of the guys out there, if you get to fly all this long time, you know, that, uh, well, they want to earn money. And you earn money in British Airways, A, by your seniority and position as a captain, but then also when they changed the rules in Britain, and I'm not sure what time that was, uh, but about, about allowances and things uh, on pay rises, there was a restricted pay rise to uh, 6% or 6 or Uh, or six pounds or something like that, you know, a month. It was a silly rise. People, so they gave a lot of allowances. So people overseas actually could put all their allowances, if they didn't spend it on, you know, the food and things, they could add that to their uh, voluntary comp uh, AVCs, annual voluntary contributions, which would increase your, you know, um, uh, your pot of money for the retirement. So some of the most senior pilots going simply for money only on the on the uh, jumbos could retire with much more money in the, in their pension pot than they ever earned as a pilot. Concorde, you did it for the love, and we had and we had a really great company on board. I mean, <laughs> the humour and the fun with it all was was just out of this world. I, I really really. <laughs> Well, you can just tell from my enthusiasm, I'm actually smiling at some of the antics. We might get a chance to say, talk about that later on. But some of the antics and the, and the jokes they were, were just great. But the flying was lovely and the passengers were just superb. Now my question comes to you, Tony. Our audience would love to know about some of the flying qualities of Concorde. Ah, that is interesting. I'm going to give you, uh, here you are, listener. I'm going to give you a lesson on how to fly. Okay, so basically... You're on the runway, you pull the stick back, the cows get smaller, and when you're ready to come down, you push the stick forward, and the cows get bigger, and you land. There you are, now you can fly. Concord is exactly the same <laughs> as... <laughs> as <laughs> and you, you made it sound so simple. Well, the truth is, if you put it, even if you applied that, you know, to one of these, these massive trucks, you see, 40, 60-ton trucks that are driving around the place, we could all drive it. Now... To drive or fly something to the exact standards required for the examinations you have to do every six months, that's a different ballgame, all right? But Concorde, but, but really, Concorde was, I think, basically, was a straight-line flying dart. So once you got to twice the speed of sound, you know, that's it. Once you were supersonic, you stayed supersonic. If for any reason at all, 
something jumped out of the jumped out of the woodwork. The problem jumped out, and you had to reduce speed. From that moment on, you weren't going to your destination unless you could actually literally see it on the end of your nose or the Concorde's nose. You were diverting somewhere else. So Concorde could not just operate on an, an engine failure. Doesn't mean you can operate on three three engines um, and then carry on flying because it, it wouldn't work that way. And that's what I was going to talk to you about. There's just a little something about the, the difference in flying. If you imagine you're just on a two-engine aeroplane, okay, and the right-hand, oh, I won't say that, well, the left-hand engine fails. The power's on the right-hand side, so you imagine the aircraft would try to swivel around the vertical, a vertical pole. As, it's going to, as it goes in that direction, because the, the wing is going faster with the engine, where the engine's got the power on there, so you're going to get more lift on that wing. So when an engine fails, you're going to get a, a yaw, as it is, to the left-hand side, and which is the, in, the nose goes swinging to the left, and a roll to the left. And pilots deal with it, that's all. So you put your big right foot in, bring the aircraft you know, back onto the nose, pointing in a straight line, and you fly with your, you know, your controls so that the wings remain in some sort of vaguely level position. Concorde was different. If you look along a picture, imagine a picture of Concorde, and I'm looking at one hanging up in my ceiling, uh, on my uh, wall right now. Halfway down this, you know, the, uh, the engines uh, nacelles, and uh, there is a little uh, a door that opens up, and it's called a spill door. Because you imagine, if you're twice the speed of sound, you've got air coming in at about 1,350 miles an hour. That's Mach 2, 23 miles a minute, one mile every two and three quarter seconds. <laughs> you know. uh, when, the air, when the engine stops, all that air is trying to go through that engine. And if it was allowed to try to do so, it could, A, damage the, the core of the engine and or split the, the wing apart. So the spill door opened. So you've now your aeroplane's engine has failed. So you're now yawing to the left conventionally. The wing is rotating initially towards the, you know, towards the uh, towards the towards the, the uh, failed engine. But the spill doors open and push all that down. So you get a supersonic roll to the right. All again. So these are the things we'd be practicing in the simulator. It's not difficult, but it's just a maneuver. You can't just immediately stick in a right a boot full of you know right rudder to counteract that because then you would overcorrect because of the spill doors dumping all this air overboard to protect the aeroplane. And then as you came down into subsonic flight again, there the aeroplane then is a conventional aeroplane. So the handling differences. It was a beautiful aeroplane to fly. Modern jetliners, when you see them flying, you see them with these great big long wings, they get a phenomenal amount of lift up from these wings. And it's quite difficult to maintain a steady flight when you're, ha when you're flying manually. Airline manufacturers don't encourage it, but um, one or two of the airlines, especially the Belgian airlines, they only ever hand flew their airplane. The, uh, the automatics were used for the uh, autom automatic landing. And on that count, I think there was a pilot called Stack Butterly, uh, a former short haul pilot, and he was known as Stack because he was always in the stack over London whenever he came back from his trip. But he only hand flew the aeroplanes, and he taught me how to hand fly the Concorde across the you know across the pond. And I, oof, I think that just over half the time on the fleet, I hand flew the aeroplane. Didn't please some of the captains, but they didn't stop me. It's very 
very nice, you know, they were very, very good and we all worked well together. But it was such a stable aeroplane. But give you an example, it, twice the speed of sound, you know, so we're talking up somewhere above 50,000 feet, half a degree pitch change, up or down, would give you a rate of climb or descent of some 1,500 feet per minute. So the, it was very minor movements, but as the aeroplane was so steady, she just flew beautifully, just like you fly it's a baby aeroplane for any, you know, that's just the way it was. Really fantastic. They didn't have flying control, you know, the normal flying controls, you know, like elevons and elevators. If you look at the aeroplane, there's no long fuselage, you know, or longish fuselage with the, with the elevators at the back by, by the rudder to make minor differences. On Concorde, there were elevons at the back, six elevons, elevators, ailerons type of thing. So to go up and down, when you pull the stick back, all six and the at the back of the aeroplane went up and all six went down when you pushed forward. If you rolled left or right, they were done such that the uh, you'd get a, a balance. So you'd only get two, you'd get four for the roll to the left, a dif differential a differential roll rate, that's all, differential um, elevons. Other than that, no, phenomenal, phenomenal flying aeroplane. It's just that you flew, remember you're flying two and a half times faster than a subsonic aeroplane. And so things happen very quickly. Uh, so that was the, hard, the hardest thing on any commercial aeroplane is when you're brand new to any aeroplane is being the first officer, doing the paperwork and keeping, keeping that, a grip on that. Flying an aeroplane is basically quite easy and manageable. It's doing the extra bits, that was all. But, but when things happen very quickly, you can get behind the, so far behind the eight ball. I mean, just as an example, by the time I, my very first full passenger flight across to New York, very different from the ones that you get on your, your training flight. We'll talk about that after. But by the time the aeroplane landed in New York, I hadn't actually reached Gander mentally. So that's how fast things were happening for me. The same way I could say to you, if you're a motorcyclist oh, oh, on a 250 uh, little bike, and then somebody gives you a Kawasaki 700, it's going to bite your bum hard, and you're going to have a lot of problems. It's going to take you a few months to get control, and then you're going to be think, well, I've been doing this all my life. Six months or so on the fleet, I'm not saying it was easy, but it was so much easier than it was on your first flight. I have never been on a Concorde. They retired it when I was 13. Talk to us about the passenger experience on a Concorde flight. Ah, okay. Now, when you look at Concorde, and you see before you get to the uh, the wing the wing route, uh, the forward door on the left hand side of the aeroplane was the one that the crew and the passengers all went in. So we all went up the same steps, or came in through the same tunnel. We turned left and went into the into the uh, into the flight deck, and you would turn right and go. And as you turned right, and you'd look down a very narrow aisle, single aisle. 100-seating aeroplane, numbers rows 1 to 26. 1 to 26, four, two seats either side. Hmm. The reason that it's 1 to 26 in deferential, in deferential to, the, to the Americans, we didn't have a row number 13. <laughs> that was it. Ah, uh, that's because it's unlucky to have row number unlucky. 13. Well, and if you go to Italy, 17's an unlucky number. So go up, you know, how many seats do you, do you rename? And it was just Concord on that one. Okay, interesting. It's going to be an American service. 
but 40 in the front and 60 in the rear. Now, they said there was no difference, but the truth is it was a little noisier in the, in, in the back of the aeroplane because you are alongside the engines and or just right at the very back, sort of just sort of uh, behind the engine. So it was a bit noisier. So most people went in the front, ca- in the front cabin. Well, you know, they, they could, when they could get there. But when I was flying the aeroplane, um, and so my time on the fleet was 1987 to 1993. And, uh, yeah, we had, I think in those days, a break-even passenger number was 43. So 43% full meant that we could break even on the flight across it. So any more than that was a, was a profit. And you get on board. So when you're sitting down, they... It's a very narrow aeroplane, as I said. Now, you can't get all these big catering trob- uh, trolleys. You can't have the lovely roast beefs and the carveries and things like that. The flight was too short. I mean, you were, say, three hours and ten minutes take off to landing. So when you first arrived at, at the airport, sort of Heathrow or at Kennedy, you had special check-in areas. You were whisked away down side doors. You went into these lovely lounges where there was phenomenal food. There was all the services you wanted, teleprinters, you know, fax machines, phone calls you could have. The best you could think of, the champagnes and all the rest of it, was just, oh, out of this world. And, and of course, when you're, if you're going on your first experience, you know, the, we had these supersonic round, round the bays, round the bay of biscuit type flights, 100, 100 minutes. You got on board, you're already feeling extremely lightheaded with the, with the champagne. Service is not, it's almost individual service. They take the trolleys through the best they could do, you know, within the confines, you know, of, uh, of the space they had. Uh, but it, you were treated like royalty. It was just absolutely magic. But, of course, you went on to drink the champagne and I'll keep on going. And in your reverie, of course, you were, as the aeroplane cruised across the Atlantic, it started to heat up. And it does, of course, because the you've all heard of the fact that um, the aeroplane used to stretch in flight. It actually gained 8 to 10 inches in flight. So a take-up... So, there, there was one place on the, on the aeroplane where you could actually see that. And that was on the flight deck. To the, as you walk into the flight deck, the first person you come to is the engineer. And he sits sideways facing these, these big panels over there. And to the right of that is a fixed bulkhead. So on the ground, you might be able to get, well, not, you might get a, a, a thin pencil into the, into the gap. At twice the speed of sound and to the end of, of Super Cruise, that's just before we came to the, uh, to the descent point, you could probably get a reasonable sized book in there but when and there is actually the captain of the last flight of, of uh, Alpha Foxtrot which is now sitting in Bristol filled in, a, in its own hangar he put his hat in there um, and it's actually sitting there now you'll never get it out the only way you'd get that out again is, uh, well you'd cut out and leave the bits in but we'd have to fly it supersonically again to be able to, <laughs> be able to pull it out now interestingly in, enough you know the people have always talked about oh this this fantastic experience but here you are in your reverie you know you're listening to the music after the meal you're just enjoying the whole thing you're drinking the champagne you know and you open your eyes and you see your glass of champagne champagne moving away from you that's got no that's that's purely the effect of the drink it's got nothing to do with the aeroplane but the aeroplane did stretch by eight to ten inches and it was on a sort of like a roller floor system 
and that was the the stretch and return back to the standard shape and the wings was the was called a supersonic cycle. That supersonic cycle uh, occurred whether you just went up to Mach two and back down again, or the whole way across the Atlantic. And it was done initially designed for four and a half thousand supersonic cycles before they'd either have to retire the aeroplane or check it to see that everything was done. It was all, all okay. So they did check everything on the foot on these big major checks. Everything was taken apart. They found the aeroplane was all right. They increased it to six thousand cycles, which allowed the passengers to um, to be able to fly a lot longer. And we were in the process of extending it up to nine thousand cycles, which would have te technically taken us to oh two thousand and eight, two thousand and thirteen at a stretch. Maybe not all the aeroplanes, but that sort of thing. But the service they got was phenomenal. The little gifties they got were great. <laughs> it it was a magic. You know, we knew everybody by name. Who came on board? We knew their foibles. Background checks were done on everybody. We knew what they liked, what they didn't like, and that was part of it. You know, it's the same. I think you, you know, dear listener, you'll go to your favourite restaurant. Why? Because a, the food is good, but b, probably because you're known. And it's you know, we are people who like to be known, and we like to be known by by name, and that. So you got such a, a really fantastic experience. Good value for money, I would have said. Tony, how would you describe the basic difference between flying a Concorde and other jet airliners? I think, be I think that as a pilot, you know, you're you have to be aware all of the times of if, if suddenly anything goes wrong. The big, the biggest thing with Concorde were the places you could go to when things started to go wrong. So your your thought process all the time were being prepared for that unexpected. I don't know the engine failure, the one of the intakes failing. Um, you want to talk about that a little later on, but the intakes were the were the actually the secret of Concorde's success. Um, not really. I think all, as pilots, you tend to be sitting on the ball all the time. But we do know, of course, from history and the accidents, and especially if that Air France four four two or four four seven, the one that crashed in the South Atlantic. Complacency sets in. Complacency from the airline industry, you know, from uh, from the training divisions uh, where things uh, are not rammed home to pilots, or people just take it for granted. You know, when, when a machine flies from A to B uh, safely and returns again, and constantly, constantly, you get lulled into this false sense of uh, security, and complacency can set in. And you're not prepared for the sudden and eventual, you know, whatever thing that happens. So there's not a great deal of difference. It's just getting used to. Um, other than I said earlier on, the fact that you could actually fly. Uh, what can I say? Across the Atlantic in such a short time was just 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 different the interesting thing that did happen the only thing that would never happen on any other aeroplane is that we had two services a day one in the morning at 10:30 and the one in the evening left at seven o'clock I would drive from home would come in at a uh, leave in in daylight because I would always get there much earlier than required because it was only for us technically a shortish day Uh, so I'd be at the airport at least two hours, if not two and a half hours, before I was required to be because there are all things you have to do. Arrive in daylight, it would then go dark, and when we took off, 
and we, we're down to, so you take off in the dark at seven o'clock. By the time you got to mid-Atlantic, you noticed that it was, as you're going across, the sky was getting lighter. You're heading west and you see a sunrise in the west. Now that's unbelievable. You can't because the sun always rises in the east. We all know that. But because at the latitude we flew at, Concord travelled two and a half times the speed of the rotating earth. Therefore we caught up the sun and we'd take off in the dark and land in, uh, and land in daylight. And when you see that for the first time, that is a little bit of a, you know you're doing something different. That sounds very unnatural, but amazing. <laughs> it is. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Why was the Concord retired in 2003, despite having a good operational history, barring the 2000 of Air France Flight 4590 crash? Well, okay. I, I think I ought to make a declaration here, um, and we all do, those who give us talks on Concord. The views I will state from now on, or I have stated, are mine and mine alone. BA, I don't represent BA or Air France or anything like that. We're just former Concorde crew members, our case British Airways, who give talks on uh, on the aeroplane, and we have our own views about what happened that, was, that caused the uh, ending of Concorde. Initially, some years ago, we talked about it being an assassination, and that's we do. Uh, what well, we do, I certainly do believe that would, in part, was an assassination. But actually, as I've gone on to and study it a little bit more. The French operated their airplane completely different from us. By the time the crash came in 2000, we were making around £5,000 net profit per month. £60 million a year. Damn good for, the, you know, for an airline. Air France were probably losing that much. Now, I don't, you know, they chose to fly to uh, Washington where they had their embassy. We chose to New York because we knew where the, where the business traffic was. And, I th yeah, it's, mm, we, we marketed the airplane so much better. We had many more passengers. Now, when I joined the fleet, we all had seven airplanes each, okay? Uh, we, all, we had seven airplanes each. The other, the six that we're doing for testing are in various museums around, you know, uh, around the world, still owned technically by Air France and by British Airways. The, the, when the, the French had, well, they, they, with the crash, of course, lost a lot of confidence um, in, in their operation. And as they weren't operating in quite the same way, in 2003, there were a couple of incidences that happened one had happened to us where we'd had a tail pane, um, part of the rudder had, had come off. That happened uh, with um, an aeroplane going into Sydney. Dave Leaney was a skipper. He didn't know anything about it. The rudder primarily on, it, on any aeroplane is used simply for the engine failure of the most critical engine, you know, on takeoff and keeping the aeroplane straight so you can fly safely away. In the cruise, it's, it's not used on all aeroplanes. So they, that was the one thing. So the French weren't very happy about that. Then they had an incident, which you cannot find anything about it anywhere, and which allegedly this is, but they had an incident where they had an engine problem of uh, mid-Atlantic, and they, we believe, did the correct drills, shut the engine down. And then, for some unknown reason, it, a 
apparently took their eye off the ball because a little while later they discovered they'd lost 16 tons of fuel. Now, 16 tons of fuel was what we would tend 12 to 16 to what we would expect to arrive in New, New York. They hadn't even crossed, got across the Atlantic. An emergency was declared and they made an emergency landing in, you know, up onto the uh, east coast of Canada. Uh, it was Halifax, Nova Scotia, I think it was. Really. Anyway, they, uh, they did the... Uh, well, when they landed, allegedly there was basically no little or no fuel. We can't find the figures out on that one. The rumours came from the tanker drivers talking to their mates and somebody let it slip. The amount of fuel they put back in, it, they'd had to have lost all that fuel. The result of which... Uh, and a number of other incidents due for the board of Air France, things like that, where another incident involving loss of life could have the board, all of the board of Air France in prison for basically keep taking their eye off the board, neg negligence or anything else. Um, they wanted to shut the aircraft, the operation down straight away. At that point, British Airways, before <laughs> knowing none of this at all, were actually making a plan to revive Concorde in a slightly different format. They were going to change the um, seating arrangement in, so instead of having 100 seats, we're going to have 120. They're going to make smaller seats in the back um, and just making it more, just comfortable seating to get people uh, as a business class venture across the Atlantic. So what will be the primary difference? If you played, what you say, you paid money for the Concorde class, you would get flown for, by private jet from, let's say, from Lossy Mouth all the way down to Heathrow, all on board the, you know, the Concorde, courtesy of, of the ticket price you paid. And when you got across to America, you'd be flown by private jet to wherever you wanted to go. The businessman would just get there quicker and it would make it, you know, a, a much nicer operation for him. And we reckoned that the, at the time the plan was going to be superb. We were going to make even, you know, going to make profit because by the time 2003 came, because of the, you know, after after 9/11, when the world lost 25 mm, percent of the first class and uh, Concorde class traffic, I did, not all those business people who want, and the people were put off by. Um, the fear of, of, of another crash or anything else that came up. And the truth was, actually, you didn't need Concorde. You know, now with Skype and everything else, you could have multi-way conferencing. You know, before you had to go to meet your people on the other side. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do conferencing by, by some sort of TV thing. So the need for Concorde went. Um, and British Airways said, well, we'll go it alone. Um, and Airbus said, yeah, well, it's going to cost you... 20, it's going to cost you your share and Air France's share, in spite of the fact the treaty made in 1962 that we would continue sharing the cost all the way through until Concorde came to its final end. Air France backed out of it, um, out of that one there. So it left British Airways then to say, well, okay, uh, we will do the 20 million because we reckon we would make somewhere about, you know, 30 million or so, 35 million a, 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 you know, at a time. And what actually happened was then, then Airbus put the price up even higher and said you have to cover all these for the next so many years. And when you look at it as a business plan, you'd say, hey, if we don't get the passengers, we are seriously going to lose money. So British Airways opted to, came, to come out. I think 
Air France stopped their flying on the 31st of May 2003, and the, you know it was in October 2003 that BA did the you know the last flights. So that, in essence, it was it was Air France that actually I think started the ball rolling, and we were forced into a situation that we couldn't get out of. Concorde wasn't the first supersonic transport aircraft. Let's talk about Tupolev Tu-144. Oh, you have to give him credit. Uh, I, I mean, I went to Russia in 1991, two years into the beginning of Perestroika. Almost on an official visit, I was actually looking for a Concorde pilot, a Russian Concorde pilot, to come and talk at the RAF club dinners, which I had taken over from uh, from Roger Dixon, known as Reg Dixon. And uh, I was doing that. And, uh, and I got to meet, uh, well, in those days, the, the biggest charter of Concorde outside of British Airways was Goodwood Travel, owned by Jan Knott and Colin Mitchell. And uh, Colin married a Russian lady from the University of, of St. Petersburg, Ludmilla, Luda, and her uncle was the Russian, one of the top four Russian generals, and he was a general in, the, in charge of the Far East. Do you remember when the Korean airliner uh, was shot down? Anyway, I got to meet him, um, but he didn't speak any English. But what a phenomenal gentleman he was. I mean, just his stories of aviation. I've got a lovely tape, which when I can get permission to do it, it's those years ago, um, I could release it, but I need somebody to write because the, 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 the speech is all bad. Anyway, they had this, fun, you know, phenomenal people, phenomenal aeroplane, uh, copied, not really, uh, there were some copying bits done, but when you think about it, the people who designed all these things were actually uh, the people who were working on the German V1, V2 rockets. All these scientists, all these specialists um, fled from Germany when, in the, you know, when the tax were going to go. Some went to Britain, some went to America, some went to France, some went all over the place. And these people were working in the aviation industry. And it was logical when you look, when you, if you go from the Saabs and things like that, the Delta shape was going to be the design of the future. It was just how the shape was going to work. Now, the interesting thing about it, the, uh, there were some spies on the French side, a story that I know about. There is a film out there that says all sorts of other things. I'm not sure about that. But there is a design. If you look at the Concorde wing shape that comes from the forward end all the way around, it's a lovely, smooth curve as it, you know, as, as it goes around. If you look at the French one, as it, starts to, as it starts to come about a third of the way back, you'll notice the shape changes. It's a sharpened point. That was a document that was leaked by the French authorities to the Russians um, as being the wing design. And that wing design caused huge problems from, the, from a drag point of view and the, and the change of the airflow over the wing. So they had the canard uh, problem as well. But the, uh, but the biggest single thing that they didn't have which was a shame, in a way, um, they didn't have the intakes. Now, guided weapons electronics discovered that the aeroplane would go farther, f faster if the, in the, with the ramp doors inside the intakes, which could move up and down uh, digitally. At the time when Concorde first came, I'm not sure what you call it, but it, it, they were ratcheted it down, so the maximum speed Concorde could get on the drawing board was Mach 1.7, therefore never make, never make New York. 
once guided weapons electronics came in and you had these digital um, channeling and uh, it worked smoothly but as i said all four had to work um, otherwise you know the thing didn't go at all and in essence what it did as you started to go you know the air in, in simple terms air in the front of the front face of any jet engine can only work at about half the speed of sound. So the intake design of all aeroplanes is designed so that the air is slowed up to reach the correct speed as it hits the first stage of the compressor. Concorde, in the 11 feet of intake from the beginning uh, down to the uh, first stage of the compressor, it was 11 foot long and you had to slow the air up from 1350 miles an hour to 350 miles an hour. So when these ramp doors, you see them, if you look at inside the Concorde intakes, up in the, you'll see the ramp doors start to move down. They both move down simultaneously. They're squeezing the air to make the air, the aircraft, uh, the air, sorry, the air go faster through the intake. Why are they doing that? You think you're trying to slow it up. So, dear listener, put your, open the palm of your hand, put it in front of your face with your thumb to the right, well, in this case, your forefinger standing upright, and as for those ramps come into play, they create what is effectively a five-fingered shockwave. Now, I'm not going into shockwave theory because I don't even understand it, but simply when you pass air through a shockwave, it decelerates at a uniform rate. The longer the shockwave, the longer the passage there, the greater will be the reduction in speed. So as the ramps come down, imagine now you twist your hand to the little finger, move it towards the left, so the air coming in is now passing through the shockwaves at a much longer, slower rate. So in 11 feet of intake, the air is slowed down by a, th a thousand miles an hour. It's going into a divergent intake, which also increases the pressure. On the, on the, the front end. So the, the pressure in the, uh, the front face of the uh, compressor was increased 12-fold, such that in supercruise, you got somewhere in the order of 63% of the thrust from just slowing the air down. The, the design of the exhaust nozzles at the back, where, where the air was flowing out, gave about 29%. Uh, of, of, the, of the thrust, the engine was ticking over and just giving 8% of the thrust. So that was the uniqueness of Concorde, of which the Russians didn't have. They had to have afterburner going the whole time. Well, afterburner going the whole time is going to burn the engines out. So their services just had to stop. They hadn't got the engines, uh, and nothing. so it didn't work for them. That's why. A shame. I mean, Tupolev, brilliant, you know, brilliant idea, brilliant concept, but uh, they were all working to the same to, to the same uh, the same point. The delta was the, was the thing that how you and what and how you handled it. Well, they, they, their engines were different from ours. You look at the two; there is a difference there. But no, it just didn't work for them. Great shame. Are there any supersonic airline projects currently under development? Let's talk about some of the possible contenders. Well. I've only been following what there's been. There have been masses of transports, supersonic, hypersonic transports being, you know, in, in the world. But let's. Do, um, I, I've just asked you, reader, if you want to look on something, just look at um, Reaction Engines Limited. Okay, ReactionEngines.co.uk, and you'll see there 
They were working with ASA, the European Space Agency, they're only interested in hypersonic flight. So have a look in there and you'll see the, the, uh, the Stylon, uh, you know, and the Lapcat, the Lapcat 2. Uh, it was just as what ASA are only interested in hypersonic flight. So they put a project in um, oh, back in the, ni- the 90s um, to have for reaction engines to produce an airliner that would take 300 people from a conventional runway um, sub- in suborbit- well, sub-son- you know, subsonic suborbital um, London to uh, Sydney in four hours. They gave the same to the German aircraft industry, but to do it in, 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 in uh, two hours. So Mac, we're talking about Mac, well, I don't know what speed it was, it was huge. The Germans could do it, but the cost involved in the metals and things like that was so expensive, it was, it was not viable. Reaction engines, you, if you look on their website, just go to the top of the page, go to the downloads on the right-hand side, and, and just follow it in there. Since then, and of course it's based on Con- the Concorde shape, the, the, their designs. Interesting enough, young man, Blake Skoll, I mentioned him earlier on, forward-thinking man, Startup company, 2014, so only three years ago, he's got this, follow him on Facebook, follow him on whatever you can do, just get into it, come up to my, uh, follow me on YouTube because I'm there, or on Facebook, actually my Facebook page, Concord Heritage, is an open site, so you can go in there and you can learn about the first lady Concord pilot, Barbara Harmer, known as Crimper, um, but anyway, but she's, because she was a hairdresser when she first started life, but there it is. But Blake's got this concordy shaped design, one-third scale model, which was unveiled last year at Denver, Colorado. And it's a brilliant concept. Lightweight materials. He's just not sure about the size of the aeroplane yet, whether it's got uh, a 45 to 55 people. Try, try jet. This is Boom Aerospace, right? That's Boom Aerospace. Okay, yeah. Just to make it clear to our audience. Oh, yes, thank, yeah, thank you. Okay, so are they, but 45 to 55 passengers, slightly faster than Concorde, probably Mach 2.2, something like that, um, and a slightly longer range. And I think when Blake told me, no, I didn't actually write it down at the time, but I think he said 4,500 nautical miles, which is certainly a bit more than Concorde. But that's going to be interesting. And, of course, it's so light um, that they probably will be able to, to fly... Um, you know, over the land without making any sonic boom. So it's going to be quite... Now, there are others in the field, you know, if you if you just put in it into Google, and you'll see the other companies. But I'm concentrating on boom because he's as close as any... I think the end of next year, um, he will be flying his full-scale, you know, his uh, full-scale aeroplane. So I think it's not going to be long. And his, he, rather like the... Uh, Acer wanted to have the fixed cost. Oh, yeah, that was a fixed cost, by the way. London to Sydney, four, four to four and a half hours at the one-way cost of business fare only. And that is the model of which they will build their aeroplanes for the future. Blake, I think, will do the same. So it's, it's supersonic flight is going to be afforded to all. No droop nose. You don't need it, anything like that. And the new metals you've got can take much higher speeds without changing shape. So there's no, you know, aeroplanes won't get extended or anything like that. And they will be commonplace. The only, the only rider I would add to it is this is, you know, if you look at what's going on at the moment, there are, with all the famine and all the problems that the world has got, 
would we not be better thinking, A, that aeroplane companies might actually work together to produce a common design, rather like Blake's or the others, get the best possible design, the rest of the money be put towards building pumps to draw water from the earth, you know, uh, so to stop the people, you know, mass migration of people starving in countries and ending up in Europe and putting stresses and strains on Europe, which they can't cope with, and in America as well. So should we, if we were looking after the rest of the world, I know, I know we're off, I know I'm off, off beat here, but it's just a thought process, dear reader or listener, would you please, you know, put that in your mind. But the future is, the future is supersonic. It really is, um, and I think that that Blake's got this great idea. Have a look. Have a look at my concordheritage.com forward slash. You know, uh, sorry, facebook.com forward slash. You know, Concord Heritage, and you'll see the shape of the, the airplane is on the front page there. Um, great, it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. Will supersonic air travel be a premium experience in the future, or are we going towards a future where supersonic air travel will be affordable? Well, what? Yeah, Larkins. What's affordable? You know, for me, uh, with the with the with the with, with my what my outgoing going is certain. It's not affordable to me, but I know what you mean in terms of for. Yes, it will be. I mean, it's it's going it's it is going to move forward. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I think it will be very affordable. There are an awful lot of, want of a better expression the middle class population who have huge amounts of spare money left over at the end of the life. Especially, there's always been in America, there's always been enough money for hunting, shooting and fishing, you know, left over at the end of the month, amongst the average of the population. Uh, and that sort of wealth is, is, is there in now many, you know, many countries, China, uh, Japan, you know, India, places like that, and Britain, and that. yeah. It's all there. It's, it is affordable. I think that we just there will be, there'll be many of them. That's all. It's just doing it. So almost like extended corporate jets. I wanted to add to my previous question about boom aerospace. Richard Branson is al- already looking into buying some of these aircraft, right? I think he's got um, rather like Concorde had with these provisional orders. I think he's got a provisional order for ten, and he, I believe, he's offering them facilities at his some of his space you know his 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 units uh for the design or whatever else that's going on you know to, so he's helping he's he's going to be a big instigator there so he's going to get a better push i think uh, or give give blake a better push at boom you know at boom than the other uh, you know lockheeds and the others he wanted uh, conquered for his uh, virgin and atlantic but he wasn't given a chance back then. No, nobody will be given a chance. It was never, you know, it was, it, if you think about it, it was a great publicity stunt. He got free publicity for weeks on this one down there. You know, Branson offers to buy a Concorde for, you know, for a pound or whatever else, take it off your hands. Here, yes, I, I knew he would have thought it through, but it was good publicity. He hadn't got the infrastructure to do it. You know, you would have need. You would have needed. First of all, the agreement was that if Concorde flew, Airbus had to be involved. That was part of it. And to be honest with you, British Airways don't want to see Concorde in the air again. In my belief, Air France have no interest in it. Airbus have no interest. Nobody has any interest in it. You know, in in that sense, yeah, there's a group of people around, Safe Concorde Group, and all the Facebook pages and things like that. I'm against all that. 
I don't, I, I, it will be nice if Concord flew, perhaps. This aeroplane's been on the ground since 2003, we're up to 14 years. Which uh, civil aviation inspector is going to authorise an aeroplane with, you know, with all that's had re remains of hydraulic fluid and oils and all the pipes and things? Are you going to rebuild that aeroplane into something? I don't think so. I would rather be like here, talking with you, Larkins, and talking with our listener about what Concord was and the fun that it was and all, you know, all the great things. I think we should live on the memories and let's put our energy into, okay, helping Reaction Engines Limited, you know, invest in them, in Blake, you know, with Boom Supersonic. That's the way I think we should be going and enjoy it. Let's, let's get on with it. Let's not, you know, let's not keep looking back. We're not going that way. We're only going forward. We're almost on the end of the podcast, Tony. So if you could recommend to one book to our listeners, what would it be? Well, um, I think mm, that's, a good, that's, a good, that's a good one. I'll tell you what, I'm, I, it's not just one. There are the books that I think which people would, would really like to, uh, you know, like to have. Um, and I've got just a look, the things here. If, if you're the if our listener is technical, there's two books, Flying Concord by Brian Calvert, ex-British Airways Concord pilot, on total operations, the inside, Concord, the inside story by Brian Trubshaw, who did the flight 48 years ago today. But the most enlightening, I think, for everybody, easy read, is the Concord story. Now, I think it's the seventh edition has just come out by Christopher Oliver. That would be the book. If you want a general thing, if you want to be more specific, go to Brian Calvert. But the Concord story, seventh edition, I think it is, is the one that's just come out this year by Christopher Oliver, O-R-L-E-B-A-R. That's what I would, I would recommend. Before we say goodbye, what would be the best way with, to connect with you well i think you can do it you can do it a number of ways we can do it through you because you're hosting me today thank you very much for this um through emma i mean i'm also on you know i'm on uh, I'm, I'm on facebook uh, msn mess you know and messenger not msn messenger I'm on, on facebook messenger um whatever i mean and my uh, yeah I, I think to do it do it through you because it'd be nice and and you can publish you know we can publish the stuff openly about you know the questions that come in. Our listeners would be interested to ask some of the questions with you. You know, they might be having some of the questions, interesting questions. So they may, might want to get in touch with you. So maybe on our podcast comment system, maybe they can ask you some of the questions and you can answer them. Absolutely. Can I, can I, can I leave you with just one short story? Because it didn't come. You asked about Flying Concord. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. The, you never, ever forget your first takeoff, you know, with the first solo, wherever you happen to be. And Concord is in particular, um, it, because Concord, at the training weights that we would do, remember the aeroplane weighed <clears throat> at, at 185 metric tons at maximum takeoff weight. Basically, in those days when I flew the aeroplane, the, uh, a London double-decker bus, the route master, the old route master, weighed about 10 metric tons. So... 18 of those double-decker buses, or 18 and a half of them, would actually be the equivalent weight of Concorde. Now, 
when Concord U lightly, lightly loaded, she had the performance of a Formula One sports car. Now, normally when you go up and you, when you take off, because the, because it's all, it's all done by automatics and things like that, you, you're sitting ready to go, so the handling pilot will say, three, two, one, now, badly if you like it, in a bad manner way, slam the throttles fully forward, all the crew members starting their stopwatches because it was timing for the noise abatement set, there was a set number of minutes or seconds that you had before you had to cut the power. And the aeroplane would start trailing off down the runway. The first thing that would be doing, the non-flying, or the, the, the calls would come out, you know, airspeed building, um, 100 knots, the engineer would call power set or engine failure. In essence, he had simple four green lights on the front panel on the, uh, where he was looking between the two pilots. The more experienced engineers could accept one failure, whatever, one green light out. Anyway, then you would get to, you know, uh, V1, which is the speed at which you decide whether you can continue the takeoff um, or you have to stop, you know, you have to stop the aeroplane because of a problem. The next thing is the rotation, which, as I said before, is as, as the pilot pulls the stick back, rotates around the main wheels, brings the nose of the aeroplane up to about 13 degrees, um, and then the next thing, almost immediately, you get V2, the speed, which is the speed at which, beyond which, or from which, you can maintain directional control and fly the aeroplane safely, which is, incidentally, we didn't cover anything about the crash, but we can, if you want to do another one, we can do that. It never happened for them on the crash. They never even got that speed, which is why the aeroplane kept turning around to the left and eventually fell out of the sky. So here I am with John Cook, flight training manager, um, he and I became, you know, I was known as the Adj, the adjutant, and I nicknamed him the Red Bar or the Baron, the Red Baron, because he loved aviation, he loved his golf and everything else. Uh, anyway, we were up at Prestwick, going out for the very first flight, so, and he, I'd, unbeknown to me, he called air traffic control and said, give us the clearance to 3,000 feet, but I want you to block the altitudes up to 5,000. Um, so we get on the runway, so, um, uh, so the normal cause is, you know, okay, 100 knots, you're trundling down the runway, and you get the V1, you know, rotate, V2, positive climb, call for gear up. Soon, now imagine yourself watching a cartoon, Tom and Jerry. Tom's got his foot on Jerry's tail. Jerry is pedaling away like mad, and he lets it go. Bing! I said three, two, one. now, slam the throttles forward, and... This aeroplane leapt out of the, off the, you know, off its brakes, rather like a horse coming out of the starting box, and we leapt off down the runway. I, I was really surprised at, at, at just how fast it was going. I heard SB building, 100 knots, power set, V1, rotate. I go, oh god, and I'm pulling the stick back, and and it's not just 13 degrees because it's so light; it's up to about 20 degrees, you know. And I think, oh, you know, okay, I can fly an aeroplane. I can hold up, cleared to fly into 3,000 feet. And I'm rocking it up, and then I hear um, three, two, one noise. Oh, God, and I'm pushing the stick forward, and oh, everybody on the flight deck is now doing a bit of negative G because I'm a bit rough, <laughs> a bit rough on the handling there. Um, to, uh, and the earth is climbing away, and, and, I, and I suddenly think, we're through 3,000 feet, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. So I'm now pushing like mad, you know, and try, trying to get the aeroplane under control. And I just under 5,000 feet, I managed to level the aeroplane off. And I'm thinking... I'm a damn pilot. Why can't I fly an aeroplane like this? And that, and he did that to every new pilot. All right, well, that he took 
Were you hey, flying with, without passenger or was it... Or oh, was yes, passengers. Passenger. So it was a training flight, my very, very first takeoff on the training flight. So there were no passengers on board. So that's why it was so light. Okay. Because you, you, had, you had fuel for about, you know, for an hour. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't fly for an hour, but we would just go and flog around. You know, we'd do three or four landings and then that was it. That's, it was so expensive. We had to do 35 landings. Instead of the three other airplanes. So that was a lot. And the reason why, um, you know, listener, is that you see when you watch Concorde come in, very high nose attitude. A simple analogy. Drive in a car, put your hand outside the window with it, the palm flat to the ground, and then turn it 90 degrees to the right so you've got the flat face you know, trying to move your arm back again. The minimum drag speed for Concorde was 400 knots, which was also our climb speed. So when you were coming in to land you know, at about 190 knots, you are on the really the wrong side of the drag curve. So there's so much drag there that if you mishandle the aeroplane in any such way, not only can you, you know, you can actually drive this thing into the ground and really seriously damage or break the aeroplane, it can do to all sorts of damage. So the technique had to be learning how to do the thing properly. And the reason they did 35 language landings is that if you, okay, they wanted to see you make a mistake at some point or prove that you didn't make a mistake, that you could actually handle this aeroplane like that because that, that was the critical part of it. But it was, that was the 35 landing. And that's what I did on the course. And my last, my last trip, <laughs> you know, from the, from the course, we were in Shannon. He said, okay, you fly it back into London. And I just come off one. Remember the BAC one eleven, and here I'm flying in on what was in I think two eight left into Heathrow, and this is it. I was so relaxed. I passed the course, all the bits and pieces down there. I went back to thinking BAC one eleven, and the one and only landing, bad landing I did on Concord ever was into Heathrow that day with all the instructors on board at the back and the other, you know, the other trainee pilots, and I hit the ground. Oh dear, oh dear! And Harry Linfield came up to me and he said. Oh, great, Tony. So I wish I had my video come, you know, up here to record that landing. And he was one of my instructors. He was one of our instructors. So, yeah, it was, it was very different. That was the biggest difference, I suppose, on uh, flying the aeroplane was, was being able to manage, you know, the aeroplane properly on the approach. But thank you very much for, you know, for your time and letting me tell the story. That was amazing, Tony. It was amazing to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, we will have you in the future as well, you know, in a future episode. Well, look, I, I would love to. Yeah, I mean, remember that 2019 is going to be the 50th anniversary. And we talked about Stringfellow. He will be 220 years since, he's, since his birth. And just so to say, add more to the confusion, because Concord Alpha Alpha, who did the first flight to London to Bahrain and the first flight into New York 18 or 15 or 16 months later, um, was also the home of the R-34, which was built in 1919 and flew from East Fortune, with where Concord Alpha Alpha is, and where I do my presentations. And by the way, if anybody out there is listening and coming to the air show uh, in July this year, it's on the website for the National Museum uh, of Scotland. Uh, there, the R-34 sailed from there across to uh, America. So you've got 220th, you've got the 100th anniversary of the R-34 and the 50th of Concord. So maybe we can do something um, in 20... Oh, I'm happy to do it before, but in 2019 as well. Maybe with Emma, you and I sit together and have a conversation on 
in 2019. Absolutely. Oh, what a good idea. Yeah, because she's, uh, you know, so much a big fan of Concord and, uh, you know. Oh, I, think, I think she should be, you know, she should be here. You know, the, the, you know, one of the nice things I like about Emma, you know, she's, um, Boom had to give up her up her internship. She's had to finish her internship with Boom. Um, and I know she wanted to continue working with them, and that was her, you know, her thoughts. Uh, but the thing is, her positivity and her outlook like that, she's moved on. She's now looking for the right, you know, the right internship. She wants all these sort of things. I think she's the right person to have on the show. And may, maybe we can do, may, maybe, maybe if you came over, you know, if you have a, the opportunity to come over to UK um, or to, you know, we can find a studio somewhere to do, you know, um, a video, a video cast and get Emma to come over, you know, with her mum and dad or whatever. And maybe, you know, the three of us can sit down there and um, have a chat rather like we've had today. That sounds exciting. Well, I've, I think it, we, we, we've got time to talk about this one. I always used to leave, uh, when after I became a captain, when I used to leave my uh, passengers with, my, with the last word before they would get off, um, I would just always say, as I'm going to say to you now, and, and really, thank you very much for letting me you know, tell my side of, of things and for the questions you've, you've asked. Uh, and I wish you, well, you, know, you and your listener, Safe and onward travels, whatever you're doing, whatever you do it safely, but may your God go with you. Thank you so much, Tony. See you around. Yeah, thank you very much, Larkins. For show notes, visit defenseaviation.com forward slash episode 7. If you like this episode, please leave me an honest review and rating on iTunes by visiting defenseaviation.com forward slash iTunes. Your reviews on iTunes will help Defense Aviation podcast and its ranking on iTunes immensely. Yeah.